0: Well, it is so good to see you guys this morning. I'm excited that you are here. If you have a Bible, go ahead and find Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. In addition to that, if you want to go ahead and sign the roll sheet at each of your tables, that would be super helpful. Um, That way we just have a record of your attendance. It's been a, a weird couple of weeks, a little off the normal schedule, but I have missed being up here teaching you all from the book of Acts uh, just as a way of public record, if you were here two weeks ago, uh, Cameron Reedlove, one of our pastoral interns, did a great job teaching through Acts chapter 3, um, the healing of the lame man at, uh, at the beautiful gate, and Paul uh, Peter's sermon rather at Solomon's Portico. There's a lot of really good stuff for us there. So if you haven't had a chance or if you weren't here two weeks ago, I really encourage you to go uh, online on Vimeo or other places you can find our sermons, and I would encourage you to listen to Cameron's. It was really good. And then the last week, we heard from Andrew Letson uh, with Shepherd Staff with our International Missions Festival, and uh, he did a great job sharing his testimony and how he got into the world of missions and gave some good, I think, responses to some of your questions as far as what does it mean or look like to be on mission as a, as a young believer. Um, but this week, we're back in Acts, and we're still in the scene where Peter is preaching at Solomon's portico. So just to give you quick context, Pentecost has happened, the Spirit has fallen on the disciples, they've proclaimed the gospel, thousands of people come to faith in Christ, and Peter and John are walking to the temple to go worship, and they see a man who is lame, uh, who has been unable to take care of himself for, as we'll learn uh, today, over 40 years, and miraculously, in the name of Jesus, causes this, calls this man to stand up and walk, and he does. And because of this miraculous sign, uh, a crowd is gathered at Solomon's portico, this this kind of public area, and Peter presents the gospel once again, and they are listening to his gospel presentation. But we're about to enter a season in the book of Acts that will color the rest of our reading of the book, and that is a section of opposition. So the, the title of the message this morning is, The Beginning of Persecution. The beginning of persecution. Because we're about to start on a path that's going to reach a climax in Acts chapter 7 and 8 with the story of Stephen. But now we're beginning to see that this wonderful, miraculous outpouring of the Spirit and this wonderful gift of eternal life through Christ is going to be opposed. The church from the very beginning is opposed, just like its Savior and head Jesus. But what we're going to see this morning is what the Spirit of Christ provides in the midst of that opposition. So first, we're going to see Peter and John on trial. They're going to be arrested. They're going to stand before the Sanhedrin, which is the kind of the major council of all the uh, Jewish rulers of the day. Then we're going to learn of the verdict of those religious leaders. What's their response to that trial? And then finally, we'll see the response of the church in this new era of opposition. And I'm hopeful that the Lord has something for each of us today as we read and study his word. So let's read our text and jump in. We're going to start in Acts chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about five thousand. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, This man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let's pray before we go any further. Oh, Lord God, we are so grateful that we have another day, another day to rise from our slumber another day to prepare to live another day to gather as your people another day to open your word and hear you speak. Lord, your mercies are new and fresh for each one of us today. And, and Lord, I know that there are so many things going on in each one of our lives. There are hundreds of desires and pursuits and thoughts and frustrations and doubts and questions and things to do on our minds. But Lord, I pray that we might bring those things to you now. As we open up your word, as we hear you speak, as you transform us by the renewing of our minds, remind us once again the good news of the gospel. Remind us once again that you are our greatest treasure. Remind us once again that we can have the same kind of boldness as Peter, no matter where we are, no matter our circumstances, because we know that we have eternal life in Jesus. It is in his name that we are saved. And it is in his name That we gather. So we pray that by the Spirit of Christ, you might help us learn and grow and worship together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so scene one is the interrogation. So if you're taking notes this morning, we're at the interrogation. The interrogation. In what seems like the middle of Peter talking, the religious leaders come and arrest him and John. You see that in verse one. As they were speaking to the people, They came upon them. So, I mean, in the middle of Peter proclaiming the gospel, it's like the religious leaders and the uh, temple police come and take him off the stage, so to speak, and throw him in jail. Now, why would they do that? (laughs) Why would they arrest them right then and there? Because the text tells us they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, this Group the religious leaders and the scribes and the priests were a part of the um, status quo of power in Israel. So you think about the most important people, the most influential people, the people who have the most power in that culture. It's this group of people. And the name of Jesus... The messages around the name of Jesus, the signs and wonders around the name of Jesus, the changed lives around the name of Jesus uh, was turning everything upside down from how the way things were before. And in fact, they were greatly annoyed, the text tells us, because particularly the Sadducees, kind of a flavor of some of these religious leaders and teachers, they completely denied the existence of a resurrection. So they didn't even think a resurrection was ever going to happen, and now there's this man Peter proclaiming that Jesus has been risen from the dead, and if you believe in him, you'll be raised from the dead, and thousands of people are listening to him. So they are greatly annoyed. It seems like a little bit of an understatement for Luke to write. But since it was evening and official business was over, the Sanhedrin, that group of religious leaders, couldn't gathered together to do any official business. So Peter and John stayed in custody overnight. The beginning of the next morning, they would have this time of interrogation, but not before the preaching of Peter was heard and believed. It says that the number had risen to 5,000. That's 2,000 more than the day of Pentecost. And to be clear, what we're talking about here is 5,000 men. Which most likely is just a holdover of saying 5,000 families were there and were believing. In other words, Jerusalem is being changed. I mean, if 5,000 families were living a certain way and then in the matter of a few weeks were living a different way, people would notice something's happening, something major is taking place. And the next day, the trial begins. The high priestly family, including Caiaphas and Annas, were the elite power brokers of Israel. I mean, if they said something, it happened. They had influence over the people, but that also meant that they had to fight to keep it. Keeping that power was now their main objective. What originally should be the main objective of a priest is to worship the Lord and to be the mediator between God and his people, to offer sacrifices, to To live a life that is all about the well-being of God's people in God's presence. And yet, their main objective was not that. It was to keep and increase their own power. And it blinded them to what was right in front of them, just like before with Jesus. So they ask, by what power? Or by what name did you do this? Now it's clear they know a lame man has miraculously been healed. As we'll see in this text, he's right there. I mean, they can't deny that that something amazing has happened, that a sign has taken place. But they're asking the question, how did this happen? By what power did these things happen? Under what name did these things happen? And that's instructive for us because Peter's preaching is clear. The name was said. The sign of the healing was undeniable. And yet the scribes and the rulers of the temple, they cannot see. The Spirit was not with them. So Peter, filled with the Spirit, responds to the question. He once again bears witness to the power and wonder of Jesus Christ. The crucified one, the one whom they crucified, the one who God raised from the dead, it's in his name that this man was healed. And not only that, this Jesus is exactly who these leaders proclaimed to themselves and proclaimed to the people that they were waiting for. I mean, as priests, they're teaching and they're offering sacrifices and they're reminding the people of God, the Messiah is coming. The son of David was promised. The son of Abraham will bless the nations. That This Messiah is coming. God's anointed one is coming. He's coming. And when he comes, he's going to save us. Well, he's here and they've missed him. They've missed him. Not only did they miss him, they killed him. They murdered him. It's why Peter can say they were builders And the stone that they rejected was, in fact, the cornerstone, the most important stone in the foundation of a building. So Peter quotes that psalm, Psalm 118.22, to make it clear. Religious leaders, Sanhedrin, you are fulfilling the word of God. You are fulfilling the scriptures in your actions, but it is not in the way that you had hoped. It's not in the way that you want because your role in this as the fulfillment of God's word is not in the sight of God to be good, but you are in opposition to him. This scathing rebuke, however, is not Peter's last word. His task is to witness to Christ and his gospel. His task is not to leave people, even the Sanhedrin, even the men who murdered Christ. It's not his task to leave them in condemnation. He says, no, salvation can come through Christ and Christ alone. So you can look to yourself. You can look to your power and your influence. You can look to your works, but none of those things have power to save you. And what he says to the religious leaders in verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there's no, undername, there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Do you hear the offer there? Religious leaders, you can can confess Jesus too. And you don't have to (coughs) just live in your worldly power. You can come to Christ and have eternal life. You can have resurrection power. But just like this wicked family was drunk on the power of the world and yet could not stop the message from going forth, you and I live in a day where the world and the forces of darkness can try and claw and grab and censor and do whatever it can try to do, and yet the witness of the church will continue. There's a wonderful little quote here by John Stott. He says, uh, you should see it on the screen, the Sadducees could arrest the apostles, but not the gospel. I mean, They can, they can stop the... People from talking, but the message is still going to go forth. They can can put these guys in prison, but they can't stop the spread. They cannot stop the gospel expanding further and further out. So that's the interrogation. That's the trial. we're, We're very clearly seeing these two lineages. One, sons and daughters of God living by faith in Christ. Another this high priestly family who is in opposition to Christ and his gospel. And I think Luke puts that in front of us to say, whose side are you on? I mean, Jesus tells us something like this. You're either for me or against me. You're either with me or you're not. And we put it in this stark contrast to see One of these ways of living leads to life and blessing and joy. One of these ways of living will lead to destruction. That leads us to the next passage. Look at verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people for all were praising God for what had happened for the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So in the first scene, we have the interrogation. (coughs) In the second scene, we now have the verdict, the verdict. The Sanhedrin confers together. They try to figure out, all right, what are, we, what are we doing with these guys? How can we respond to what we're seeing? Because we can't deny that a sign's been performed. We can't, we can't deny that. So what can we do? But the beginning of this meeting is full of astonishment, right? It says when they, when they realized that these were common uneducated men, they were astonished. They were stunned. They weren't expecting this kind of boldness. And if you and I have been reading the gospels, it might be difficult for us to expect this boldness too. Because the last time we saw Peter before any kind of religious opposition to Jesus, he was quick to deny Christ. Not once, not twice, but three times. And not only the religious leaders. I mean, one of the religious leaders, servant girls. Hey, weren't you with Jesus? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, the last time Peter's been in front of this kind of leadership, he was a coward and a liar. And he renounced the name of Jesus. But now, filled with the Spirit, he's like a lion. He's bold. He's faithful. He's clear. They weren't expecting that because Peter and John don't look the part, right? They didn't go to the right school. They didn't go to the rabbinic schools to learn the scriptures. And yet they had clearly been with Jesus. I mean, they all can see this. They all know this. They have spent time with Christ. Remember how Acts begins. Jesus spent 40 days after the resurrection teaching his disciples. And that came after three years of leading them. What's the point of that? Time with Jesus will change you. You spend time with Christ in prayer, in his word, with his people, you will change. It will have an effect on you. And this image that we see of the religious leaders, those who were supposed to be proclaiming the word of God and calling on people to follow the will the will of God, Uh, We see this shift between them and Peter and John. And what I've shown you in this first section is that the religious leaders do not have the spirit or else they would see. Peter and John do have the spirit. Peter was filled with the spirit and spoke. And that shift should remind us of something. Patrick Schreiner in his commentary kind of clues us in to say the shift from the religious leaders to the apostles is like when the spirit left Saul. Saul in 1 Samuel, and then fell on David. And what was the response of that? Saul raged against David. Saul wanted David dead. But God had chosen his anointed one and preserved him. And in the same way, God is going to preserve his church against the persecution of a world who thinks it has a right for power and for influence, but does not. Additionally, time with Jesus is going to lead to amazing things in your life in the same way it's leading to amazing things in the apostles' lives. Because these religious leaders, they cannot deny that a man was healed and he's standing right in front of them. So they told Peter, John, and the healed man to leave because they got to figure out what to do. While the bold proclamation of Christ's resurrection power rings forth with clarity and simplicity out in public, the scheming of the power of the world has to take place behind closed doors. But we gotta, we gotta confer together and figure this thing out. We've gotta come up with a scheme or a plan to make sure that God's name in Christ, that that name of Jesus can't go out anymore. And all they can come up with is tell them not to talk about Jesus anymore. <laughs> and that's like that's all they got. We gotta tell these people not to talk about Jesus anymore. Why? Because they don't want that name to spread any further among the people. From the beginning, the church has had opposition, seeking to keep the name of Jesus out of the ears of the world. That's not new in your life. That's not new in your school. That's not new at your job. That's not new when you go to certain places or certain events or hang around certain people. That pressure to be quiet about Jesus that the church feels has been there since the beginning, Because since the beginning, there has been opposition. And there's been an enemy that wants to keep God's people quiet from saying the name of Jesus wherever you are. Now, these leaders clearly saw the sign. And Peter's sermon was ornamented with the miraculous. And yet, as I said before, they still refuse to believe the one behind the sign itself. This tells us that the Spirit has to work in the heart of a person for them to see and to hear and to believe. So when you go share your faith and it's not met with immediate repentance and salvation, do not think that your faithfulness has failed. I mean, if anybody has some firepower to convince people, it would be Peter right now. Hey, that guy that you've seen for 40 years, lame on the side of the road, here he is. And Jesus healed him. And they're like, I just don't believe that. If that's true of them, do not be discouraged when your faithfulness is not met with absolute response of salvation in life. Because you're not called to produce results as Christians. You're called to be faithful. You're called to be faithful to his word. You're called to be a faithful witness of his resurrection. And the Spirit of God will use that faithfulness as he sees fit. I was talking with Pastor Brian a couple of days ago, and we were talking about how uh, a bunch of uh, folks from Lakeview go out to downtown Auburn on Thursday nights late at night to go try to witness to people who are out bar hopping or just out and about around downtown late at night on Thursday. And you know, Brian and I were talking and he said, it's it's hard because, you know, so many times you get into these conversations and it's so apparent that like, hearing the gospel is the last thing that this person wants. It's the last thing this person wants to hear. This person is obviously in sin. They're probably uh, a little intoxicated or maybe a lot intoxicated. And so you're trying to do these things or kind of sow these seeds or invite people to come to church or do these things. And it just feels often as though uh, those things just don't, bear any fruit. But that faithfulness to go and to bear witness, to to proclaim God and his gospel is is met with deaf ears. But he told me a story about a guy that he had met earlier in the year. Same situation, same conversation. And what seemed like a little bit of fruitfulness, he came to church one time, but then he just disappeared. And Brian was like, man, I you know, I think about that guy from time to time. I texted him a couple of times, kind of nothing. And uh, he showed me, man, at the beginning of the week. He got a text from this guy. He said, hey, man, I moved back home uh, later that spring. And uh, but now I'm back and I'm coming to Lakeview on Sunday. And I want to meet with you because I want to tell you what God's been doing in my life. Uh, because he has humbled me and he has changed me. And it's been a hard couple of months. But man, I'm filled with joy. And Brian had no idea that like going to share the gospel with a guy out in the bars on a Thursday night would be part of the means by which God would bring this person to himself. You don't know that either. So I say that to say when you see Peter and John faithfully proclaiming with boldness before a group of religious leaders and their proclamations are not received well, you don't be discouraged when yours aren't received well either. You're in good company because fruitfulness is not your task. Fruitfulness is not your responsibility. Faithfulness is. So when they render the verdict, Peter and John continue to speak with boldness. They must obey God rather than man, right? Your response, not the thing that changes my directive. I'm gonna speak about what I've seen and heard. I can't help it. It's what I've been called to do. It's what I want to do. They cannot help but speak about what they've seen. They cannot help but speak about what they've heard. And in light of the verdict, the people around the temple are praising God for his power. Luke gives us a little detail too that should remind us of something. The man was lame for over 40 years. He had waited outside the temple for 40 years and now the resurrection power of Jesus has led him to healing and life. It should remind us of God's people wandering about in the wilderness right outside the promised land for 40 years. And Joshua was appointed by God to lead them in. We should be reminded right here, right now, the question of Joshua in Joshua 24, 14 or twenty-two fourteen, 14. When Joshua says right before they go in, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Again, it's laid out for us clearly. Who will we serve? The gods of this world? The one true God. The promises that the world offers, the promise that Jesus offers. There's only two ways to live. So let's see how the church responds to that verdict. Verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father, David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. There is so much in this text, and we do not have a lot of time, but we're just looking today, today as we wrap up this passage with the response. The response. So number three, the response. The disciples told their friends. They had people to go to, to share with what's going on. You and I need that too, so don't miss that. But what was the response of the friends? It was not to immediately fix the problem. It was not to be like, oh, those big bad religious leaders, they treated you poorly and that's terrible and that's a shame and they're awful and you're great. That is not their response. They prayed. They prayed. And what they pray is an interpretation for us through the Lord Jesus By the Spirit of the Word of God, specifically Psalm chapter 2. God here is the sovereign Lord. We know that to be a major theme of Acts, but it's clearly on their hearts with all that's going on. He made all things, He's God, and He speaks. He speaks through David and by the Holy Spirit. That's how we understand as Christians the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. How do we get our Bibles? Well, human authors speak by the power of the Holy Spirit, right? The Spirit is writing, inspiring this text. The human authors are writing this text. It is dual authorship together, and we see that here in Acts chapter 4. They quote Psalm 2 in their prayers to show that the rulers of the earth gather together to oppose God and his anointed one. But then they interpret it in this prayer to include the Sanhedrin, to include the people of Israel, because they now have shifted to the powers of the world. And now they oppose God rather than follow him. And verse 27 just leaves everyone without excuse. Truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod, that is the ruler of the Israelites, Pontius Pilate, the Roman Gentile governor over that land, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. So all the Jews, all the Gentiles, the Jewish leader and the Gentile leader, they all came together, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now you and I often... Feel a tension between God's sovereignty in the world, that He's in control of all things, that nothing happens apart from His divine decree, and the real moral agency that you and I as human beings have. The disciples of Acts chapter 4 do not feel that tension, they see those two things as completely compatible. All the people of Jerusalem, they pray, have gathered together to murder Jesus. Why? Because they hated him. Because they wanted to. Because they freely chose to conspire together to put this man on trial illegitimately to crucify him and then cover anything up that could be used against them. That's what they wanted to do. That's what they chose to do. That's what they freely decided to do together. And yet, it is exactly what the hand of God and what the plan of God had predestined to take place. I mean, it's right there, right next to each other. I think that's for a reason. I think that's for us to say, no matter what's going on in this world, if it was the will of the Lord to crush the suffering servant, then I too can have encouragement when things are hard. I too can have hope that God has not lost control. So they confess their faith in this God and ask for something. Not an end to the persecution. Not the destruction of the opposers. But for boldness. Boldness to speak. And for God to continue to do what only he can do. To stretch out his hand and perform these signs and wonders in the name of Jesus. And just like the day of Pentecost. The room was shaken and they were filled with the Spirit. And what was their next move? Verse 31, they continued to speak the word of God with boldness, just as they had prayed for. We need that too. Our faith in Christ and reception of the Spirit leads us to a life of daily taking up our cross, praying for boldness, being filled with the Spirit, and then moving on in faithfulness. And when that happens, we will see Jesus at work and we will see his word expand.